All right, let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. Commit this time to the Lord. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your abundant faithfulness to us. We thank you that you are a saving God. You are a God of grace and mercy, who is kind and generous to your people, who forgives sins, who gives us life, who sustains that life by your Spirit. You are the God who makes yourself known through your Word, who speaks to us with clarity and with power and authority, such that it changes our very lives. We thank you for that, Father, and we can rest in that guarantee that your word will not return void, that it will always accomplish its purpose, that it will accomplish its purpose in us, that by it we will become more like Christ, that we will live to serve and glorify you. I do pray that this morning in the study of your word, your people will be blessed, Lord, that you will, above all would be, would be blessed by it. So I pray that you would give me strength and give me utterance, speak through me, that your people may be encouraged and strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to invite you guys to open up your Bibles. We will continue our study in the book of Second Peter. Last Lord's Day for Resurrection Sunday, we explored the book of Revelation, and of course it relates uh, very profoundly to uh, the section we're dealing with in Second Peter. So in some sense, there is going to be some continuity, especially as we find how Christ will reveal himself uh, in a text like this. So if you're there, Second Peter chapter 3, the text for the day will be as it was a couple weeks ago, verses 3 through 9. So please follow along as I read. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is our text. May the Lord be blessed by the reading of His Word. So just a cursory reading of this, you can see that there are many interesting things that are said. The, the passage before us is one fraught with much debate. Uh, these are passages that we keep fighting over, even amongst ourselves. And of course, as we move through this as quickly or as slowly, but as carefully as possible, I trust that we will land at a uh, correct interpretation, and that will help guide our thinking for the remainder of the book, and not only that, but for uh, the very lives which we live in Christ today. So Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3-9. through nine. Uh, the, the, the theme, the title for... Uh, this little mini-series is called The Certainty of Christ's Return. We are in part two. So, The Certainty of Christ's Return. 
And one of the main reasons that we're so certain about Christ's return may, may be different from, maybe a different paradigm than what we're used to. The reason we're certain of Christ's return is that the return that Peter has in view, I believe, has already happened. We are dealing with something that from our standpoint is a historic fact. It has already happened. This return has already taken place. And I believe that this has a very important application for us because the question in something like this will inevitably emerge. Well, if this has already happened, if this is already in the past, then what does that have to do with the church today? Right? If we're not looking forward to this event that typically we are taught is a future event then what does it have to do with us? Secondly then, if this is a past occurrence, then what is the church waiting for? What are we doing down here? Because typically we say, well, well we, live, we live life in view of Christ's return, His inevitable and imminent return. It could happen any day. And if that is perhaps not the case, then what is the church doing? And I believe we can answer these questions however briefly. And of course, some of you are familiar with these. We've, we've kind of tried to answer this before but I want to keep reminding you so we have the correct framework in view going forward. So firstly, what does this have to do with the church today? Well, for one, we find out in this passage that Christ will and has indeed kept His Word. So what that means for the church is that we live and continue to live in the light of a Word fulfilled. We live in the light of a promise, a very important promise, that has been kept to the letter. Christ told His disciples in Matthew 24, and we will be going through various passages from that chapter, told His disciples in Matthew 24 that He would return to execute vengeance upon His enemies and so deliver His people and vindicate His own name. The Word of Christ would prevail. And so we see that He did just that. He did that in history. So we live also in light of a victory achieved. So a word fulfilled, a promise kept, and a victory achieved. How else do we explain the fact that Christ leads His church, even though we may suffer for His namesake, in triumphant procession? How do we characterize ourselves as a church victorious and a church triumphant if all of these terrible things are happening to us, whether it's then or now? And it is found in that, that because Christ is victorious, His people are also victorious no matter how bleak things may seem at any given time in redemptive history, no matter how intense persecution may come about, we are and do remain the victorious people of God. And so the coming of Christ that Peter in his own time is anticipating would be Christ's victory over his enemies. And so the church continues to proclaim the gospel and advance the kingdom of God in light of those very truths, in light of those very historic events. And so this leads us to the second question. What are we waiting for? What is the church waiting for then? So we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago and it bears repeating now. And we draw this from 1 Corinthians 15 and Psalm 110. Two very simple but straightforward passages. Jesus is ruling in the midst of His enemies. That is Psalm 110 until all those enemies have been put under His feet. That's what we're waiting for. And yet we are living in it. In fact, we are participating in it in the power of the Holy Spirit. What is putting Christ's enemies under His feet? The Gospel and the proclamation of the good news of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. So all these things are an abiding reality. 
And when all those enemies have been put under his feet, then death itself will be swallowed up in victory. That's what we're waiting for. And I'd say that's a pretty exciting thing to be waiting for because, again, we're, we are living in and participating in the very process that is going to bring about the death of death. And so we don't have to sit here and wonder or doubt or fret about prophetic timelines. We can live already in light of Christ's victory. So that is the certainty of Christ's return. And if you didn't write it down last time, I'll go through this outline that we have for this as to what this passage involves. And it involves, that is, the certainty of Christ's return. It involves two primary things in verses 3-9. through The first is that we can be certain of His promise to judge. That's what we are certain of. And that is verses 3-7. through In verses 8-9, through we can be certain of His power to save. Because as we remind ourselves, Christ's return does not simply involve judgment on His enemies, but involves the very salvation of His people. And those two things throughout history have always walked hand in hand. God saves His people by judging His enemies. And so we find ourselves still in the first section. So we are certain of His promise to judge. So if you look at verses 3-4, through in the first part of 4, this is what we tried to cover last last time, is that we can be certain of of God's promise or Christ's promise to judge in spite of unbelief. Now draw your attention to verse 3, where Peter says, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. So we see there are two initial and primary ways that unbelief is expressed, that a denial of Christ's promise to judge comes out. But in spite of that unbelief, The Lord Jesus will have His day. He will judge. This unbelief expressed through mockery, through scoffing, even sarcasm. We find sarcasm. Where is the promise of His coming, they ask. Look at verse 4. They say, where is the promise of His coming? And all the while they are mocking and following after their own fleshly desires that are characteristic of life apart from Christ. Where is the promise of His coming, they say. The Lord spoke, and yet nothing has happened yet. See, that's the unbelief expressed. And that's where we closed last time. The calling into question the very Word of Jesus, which is the very Word of God. Has God said this? And if He has, then why hasn't it happened? And then, of course, their conclusion is, because it hasn't happened yet, it's not ever going to happen. And so we come to that second sub-point in this certainty of His promise to judge. Not only will Jesus judge... In spite of unbelief, He will also judge in spite of circumstances. We ask, well, what are these circumstances in view? Well, let's look at at verse 4 again. That second part. They say this, because they they link the promise of Christ's coming to, to this thing that is happening in their own time. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So those are the circumstances in view, of course, they, they look around and say, hey, these are the circumstances. These things haven't happened yet. Therefore, Christ's promise to judge is irrelevant. It's merely words, they would contend. So who are these fathers? The fathers were, if you were living in that time, we, we speak of them too, the Old Testament fathers. It's typically what we, what, what, we, what we would have in view. Old Testament fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Those figures that were 
uh, pivotal and instrumental in receiving the promises of God and speaking them forth, right? Those who believed. But I think Peter has a different type of person in view. I do believe that these are actually the first century apostles. Those are the people who are falling asleep. It makes the most sense in this first century context. In 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul speaks to the Corinthians and says he's admonishing them as his beloved children. He even speaks to Timothy as his son in the faith. Paul sees himself as a spiritual father, being an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 6.13, he repeats the same thing. I speak as to children, right? He sees the Corinthian church, especially in their immature state, as his spiritual children. And he's trying to raise them up to godly maturity. So he is a father to them in that regard. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.11, he says this, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So you really have that idea clearly expressed in the New Testament that the apostles were seen as fathers. Just as the Old Testament had their patriarchs in the form of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and more, so in the New Testament we have what we would see as the New Testament fathers, the apostles, right? Those that provided and taught the doctrinal foundations of the entire New Covenant order and teaching. Same with 1 John. Uh, we've been going through that in our young adult study, the, going through the book of 1 John. Little children, he says, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Right? Speaking to them as their spiritual children in the faith. Again, not to look down on them, but to recognize, hey, I am taking responsibility for you. I have been tasked with speaking and explaining the Word of God as taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, taught and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so these, OT, these NT fathers are falling asleep. So we would ask, what, does the fa- what, what do the fathers falling asleep have anything to do with the promise of His coming? Why is this important? How does it help us understand the text? I think this goes back to something we covered earlier in this book from Matthew 16.28, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, to His disciples, There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And very briefly, we understood the Son of Man coming in His kingdom as referring to Jesus' return in judgment upon Jerusalem in fulfillment of His own Word. That whole motif of the Son of Man coming in His kingdom was just that. A fulfillment of at least the prophet Daniel, this image of the Son of Man coming to receive a kingdom and glory from the Ancient of Days. This is what is being foretold. And so, of course, this event is one that is close to its fulfillment. John talks about it. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. They all have this in view that this day is fast approaching. And it's in light of this very word that Jesus gives in Matthew 16.28. There are some standing there who would not taste death until they see the Son of Man, the glorified, exalted Son of Man coming in His kingdom to execute power and judgment upon all the nations of the earth. And we've contended, but that is still an ongoing reality. Jesus Christ is still executing judgment and righteousness and salvation upon all the nations of the earth. And so, Peter, James, and John receive a foretaste of this on the Mount of Transfiguration, just as Peter describes 
in chapter 1. So that's how it all fits together. And yet we see in the Apostle Paul's writings that this was just a foretaste. This was not the actual whole event. Listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonians because he still, during this writing, sees this event as yet to be fulfilled. It hasn't happened yet. So 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6-9. through A verse we have been well acquainted with. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Who is He writing to? The Thessalonians, a first century church. And they will be vindicated. That church in that time specifically when the Lord returns as the glorified, exalted Son of Man. So we return to this connection with the Father's falling asleep. Listen to what Peter Lightheart says. He says, For the markers, the passing of the fathers, the apostles and their associates, cast doubt on the truth of Jesus' promise to come in power. This objection has weight only if Jesus had in fact promised to come before the fathers passed away from the scene. Thus, the prophecy in dispute in 2 Peter 3 promised a coming within this apostolic generation. That's why we keep pressing this thesis that this is a first century return in view. So, uh, going on in, in, with this quote. The prophecy says will be fulfilled, that will be fulfilled is a prophecy about Jesus that is coming within the generation. So what this means is that if Jesus is wrong here, then He is a liar and therefore a false prophet. You can just chuck your Bibles in the trash. And so that's what's in question, the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That if this fails to come about, Jesus' word is no better than a lie. That should weigh heavily upon any saint, any church, especially if you're in the first century. We see Christians that are growing faint. They are, they are losing heart because that, that timeline is coming to a close. There's not a lot of time left to see that be fulfilled. And yet we can say today, if we are Christians that are you know, discouraged in any way about what God is doing in this world, we say, no, take heart because God has kept His Word. We have every reason to be confident in the advancement of God's kingdom, in the triumph of the Gospel. But if you were in the first century, you could still say, no, take heart. God has always kept His Word. He will continue to keep His Word. There is no reason to doubt it. No matter what the circumstances, no matter the closing timeline, because God has spoken... No matter what these detractors say, it will come to pass. It will ring true. It will be fulfilled. No matter how much of a razor's edge this prophecy sits on. The time is not closed yet. And Peter says, it's going to come upon us. It's going to come upon us as we look forward to this return of Christ. But look what the text says. Draw our attention here again. They say all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. So that's their reasoning. 
Those are the circumstances they bring about. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So their reasoning is nothing's changed. Why should we believe this? If judgment is coming, shouldn't there be some sign? Shouldn't there be some indicator that this is going to happen? And they're saying, nope, nothing's changed. And one of the main reasons, I would say the main reason, especially since this is the, these false teachers in view are most likely Judaizers. All they would have to do is look to the temple. At this point in history, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. So they have all the confidence in the world. And of course, in about, I think it was about AD 64, the second temple was actually completed. Remember, Herod sponsored this huge temple project to complete it, to, for it to be a, a beautiful building. And in fact, the second temple was one of the most beautiful buildings in the world in that time. It was, it was spectacular. It was prominent. You walk into Jerusalem and you, you see it in all of its glory sitting there on the Temple Mount. It was the center of Jewish culture. The center of Jewish activity. Jerusalem was the Temple. And they, even apostate Judaism, would verify their faith because the Temple was still standing. See, as time went by, You'd see one project on the temple completed after another. Hey, guess what? The outer wall was just completed. Things keep going. Nothing's really changing. The temple isn't being destroyed. Oh, look, that final parapet has been finished. Look at that. Nothing's changed. So you see the mindset of Peter's detractors. Why, why believe the word of the Lord if things just continue as they were? And then, of course, this temple project is completed. Now, if Peter is writing his book in about 66 or 67, the temple is done, judgment hasn't come, and of course, in the mind of unbelievers, Jesus' words have failed to come to pass. But of course, Jesus said those things would change. So to help guide our, our study here, let's turn to Matthew 24 and see what Jesus has to say about this time. Because we want to see how this all fits together, and of course, this won't be an exhaustive study of Matthew 24, we can do that at a different time. But not only does Peter remember the words of Matthew 24, but no doubt they have con the apostles have continued to teach that throughout the first century. And even unbelievers will hear that. They will hear the warnings. I have a lot of noteworthy things going on here. And just so you know, in terms of timeline, the, the Jewish war against the Romans started in about A.D. 66. So even if Peter's writing this very late, we see that certain things are beginning to happen that are pointing to this event, and they seem to happen rather suddenly. And the siege of Jerusalem itself, I believe, happens in early A.D. 70. So again, referencing the suddenness of it. So in Matthew 24, if you're there, what's the first thing Jesus says to His disciples? See to it that no one misleads you. That's the first thing He says. He knows that people are going to come and deceive them and mislead many, he says in verse 5. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Not only do not be deceived, do not be frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. He is talking not about a future event like in, you know, in our time, but a future event in correspondence to his time in the first century that will come upon Jerusalem. But that is not the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We see that kingdom against kingdom in Israel and Rome. 
And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So there's much more to look forward to. There's also, another, there's also another sign that will take place in verse 12. He talks about lawlessness being increased. People's love growing cold. Right? We see that in the apostate activity going on in the church. People are growing cold. People are being discouraged. People are abandoning the faith and trying to lead others away from it. In verse 15, he gives a definitive sign as well. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, right? He's telling them ahead of time, when you see this happen, and there's many debates as to what that event was in the first century, he says, That's, that is your signal. When that happens, get the heck out of Dodge. Get out of Jerusalem and don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So there will be many indicators of what would actually happen. And there's another one, uh, the parallel text, Luke 21.20. Write that down, Luke 21.20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her, that is Jerusalem's desolation, is near. So those are just a few signs that would accompany the siege of Jerusalem and its inevitable doom and destruction. And then you go down to verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So there will be apocalyptic signs. And all of these signs that Jesus describes have some kind of Old Testament parallel. Right? He's talking about judgment language. And he's, a, and he's applying this to Jerusalem, to Israel. But these things will happen in that generation. And they will be unmistakable. Here's another one. Go down to verse 34 in Matthew 24. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So there, the point of going to this passage is to say that Jesus indicated from His own mouth that there would be certain signs, clear signs that would tell of this judgment, of this time of judgment. So when it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He, who's the He? Jesus, the Son of Man, is near right at the door. So I would say, how are we to understand that except to say that that is going to happen in a very, very short time in the lives of the disciples? doesn't mean all of them have to be alive, but it means that some will be alive. If only one. Because he said they, there are some standing here who will see those things. And we would say we know that at least the Apostle John was alive when these things took place. He was alive when Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. And then he says in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation, which generation? The generation to whom he is speaking. Not some future generation, not that generation, this generation, will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he's making a claim about the words he speaks. They will not fail. They will not pass away. They will not expire. They will ring true. Now look carefully at verse 37. This kind of parallels this whole thinking of life is going on just as it always has been therefore we shouldn't expect any judgment 
In verse 37 of Matthew 24, we read this, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. What do you say? Just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So we would, so we would look at life in Jerusalem at that time. And even the character of, of those who subscribe to apostate Judaism living outside of Jerusalem at that time, we would say life is going on as normal. People are doing that very thing. They're, they're sowing, they're reaping, right? They're, they're eating, drinking, marrying, giving, giving in marriage. All the things that are pretty much characteristic as normal life. Never thinking, never wondering that the Lord will come. Never thinking that the Lord will execute His vengeance upon them. Because things are happening as they always will. I would say that today's society, unbelieving society, tries to make the same point. When we preach the Gospel faithfully, we are warning of judgment, are we not? We are warning them to flee the wrath to come just as John the Baptist did in Matthew chapter 3. And yet they say, well, what reason do I have to believe that Christ is going to judge? Show me some sign. Show me some indicator that the Lord's going to judge because as far as I can reckon, things are just going on as they always have been. People are committing the same sins, if you call it sins. People are getting married, sometimes. People are trying to work and acquire wealth. People are going about their daily business. Nothing's changed. It's amazing how much we use circumstances to try to deny the truth of God's Word. See, that's something that's always been the same throughout human history. We see it today. We saw it in the time of Noah. We saw it in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now we see it here. And yet judgment is just a breath away. Possibly, in reference to when Peter is writing, within a year or two, maybe even less than that. And we see that same parallel in Luke 17. He says it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Well, shucks, we're doing the same thing today. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Suddenly. And there were warnings, of course, but the judgment happened suddenly and severely. And so that's what we see even from Matthew 24, and we can go in much greater depth, but that's just a few examples of the signs that would be given indicating that Jesus would return soon in judgment, and perhaps even at this time, those who rejected the Word of God and denied the promises of Jesus would say, well, these things haven't happened yet. And perhaps at that time they hadn't. Maybe some of them started to happen. And yet still, the unbelief was the same. And whether they had arrived yet or not, we find that Jesus' Jesus's warnings are clear. They would all happen. They would all come to pass. And yet, those who did not believe would still remain in unbelief. And those are circumstances. And we find that circumstances should never alter our conviction of the word of, concerning the Word of God. Circumstances have never had an effect on God being able 
to carry out His Word. To be able to fulfill His promises. Nor should it affect our desire to live in light of those promises. Nor should it affect our, our ability to believe. Just because circumstances are what they are does not give us an excuse to call God's Word into question. It's like what Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. It's not as if, I know, I know religion is often defined as, was it believing in, believing in God or believing in something, something despite all evidence to the contrary? Which of course is a misunderstanding of religion. From our vantage point, we believe in the Gospel precisely in light of God's fulfilled promises. Precisely in light of the fact that God always fulfills His Word and never fails to, regardless of our perception of timing and circumstances. God keeps His Word and He keeps to His own timing. And of course we see via Matthew 24, but all of those things came to pass. God kept His Word in spite of unbelief and in spite of circumstances. And that brings us, my friends, to verse 5. That God is certain to judge in spite of ignorance. So God is certain to judge in spite of unbelief, in spite of circumstances, and thirdly, and I believe finally in this section, in spite of ignorance. So look at verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So for, they, for, for when they maintain this, we'll maintain what? They maintain that everything continues just as it was. Okay? That's, that's their stance. Everything is uniform, it's unchanging, it's continuing just as it has. But then Peter says, though they do this, it escapes their notice. So it's very important that we understand what he means by this, especially since we are most likely dealing with an unbelieving Jewish contingent who is at the front lines of this mockery, unbelief, and deception. We bring this up because as Jews, they are no doubt familiar with the Scriptures. They are no doubt familiar with the creation narrative that Peter is describing here. I believe this comes from Genesis 1-9, about the waters, being, the waters above being separated from the waters below. He's talking about the creation narrative from the book of Genesis. So they're familiar with this. And there is some irony here, because if you were a Jew and knew the Word, you would know beyond all reasonable doubt that history is hardly one of uniformity and constancy. If you're a Jew and you know the Word, you have no basis to claim that things have continued just as they are. If you were an Israelite living at any time of, of, of Israel's history, you would know that their history was hardly uniform. I mean, think, even go from the, the Exodus, right? You have redemption. You're led out from, from slavery by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. But then, of course, you're, you're in the midst of a bunch of stiff-necked and unbelieving people. So then there's judgment and discipline. And then there's restoration. And that, and that cycle continues on and on and on for hundreds of years in Israel's history through judges and prophets and kings. And then, and then finally, exile. And then restoration again. And then you have the Maccabean revolt. You have all kinds of events to demonstrate that there was constant change. There was a constant influx of, of, outside, of, of external and internal circumstances that brought lots of change. 
So it's silly from the outset that they would even claim this because it's simply not true. And in the big picture, it is essentially a denial that God is not intervening in history. There's lots of, lots of change. And so what we conclude here is that this ignorance in question, this escaping of their notice, is not ignorance in the sense of being unaware. But it's willfully turning a blind eye toward revealed truth. It's having some cursory knowledge of the truth and still ignoring it. Still putting it aside. Still putting it on the back burner. Even to the point of denying it. You say, well, so what gives? Right? Where does this come from? It's the fact that you can be familiar with the Scriptures. We, we still warn church people about this today. That you can be familiar with the Scriptures and not understand. You can quote Bible verses and have no idea what you're talking about. You can be familiar with the Scriptures and still be in unbelief. You can know the Scriptures without really knowing. We've seen this already in this same book, chapter 2, verse 18. He talks about the false teachers as speaking out arrogant words of vanity. Do you think that doesn't include Scriptures? That they simply do not know how to teach? They're arrogant words of vanity. They do no good, we've learned. We read in verse 20 of chapter 2, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we talked about that, a dog returning to its vomit, a sow returning to wallow in the mud. See, there is a knowledge here. There is some kind of knowledge, but it is not a saving knowledge. It's a knowledge that they wander from. Think of Jesus as well. When the Sadducees were testing Him in Matthew 22-29, it says this, But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. See, that's their problem. They knew the Scriptures, no doubt, but they didn't understand it. They, they, they certainly didn't understand the power of the Word, the power of the knowledge of God. See, there's a willful ignorance. There is a willful, willful ignorance built upon an unbelieving heart that causes one to reject what is staring him in the face. This is what is going on with, with, uh, in, 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 the, in the minds of, of who uh, Peter is addressing. Now listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 1.7. Speaking of these teachers, they want to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. You see that? They are taking the Scriptures. They are taking the law. They are teaching it. But they are butchering it. They are mangling it. They have no idea what they are talking about. So they have some knowledge. Right? But it is not a knowledge that is leading to life. It is not a knowledge that is leading to perseverance or believing in the promises of God. In fact, it's a knowledge that will only end up condemning them in the end because they willfully reject it. They are willfully ignorant. A way of understanding this is that they are stupid on purpose. They are stupid on purpose. They have the information, they have the truth, and yet they place it aside. They reject it. And that's very important for our understanding today, church, is that when we, when we proclaim the Gospel, when we, when we teach the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ and people reject it, we have to get beyond this, 
this assertion that the reason that they don't believe is because they don't have all the facts. Sometimes we walk away from, from what we would call an evangelistic or an apologetic encounter and that ends in the other person still in unbelief. And we think, man, if only, if only I had told them this, if only I said this, if only they had awareness of this, most of the time that's not the problem. You told them the truth. You gave them the truth of the gospel. You, you, you put it before them. You told them repent, believe. You gave them the facts. That wasn't the problem. These people have the facts. People we talk to today, they have the facts and they still do not believe. So not having the facts isn't the problem. The problem lies in their heart. Their heart is darkened. Their heart is unregenerate. And they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And because their heart is darkened, no matter what you tell them, no matter how many facts they lay out, unless the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates their heart through the, through the Word of the Gospel, they will remain in unbelief. It's once again a reminder that we rely on God's power and wisdom and not our own to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But this also tells us that they are without excuse. They know the truth. They have heard the Gospel. They have heard these judgment warnings. And so they are willfully ignorant. They are stupid on purpose as they continue to wander in unbelief and try to coax people into the same unbelief. Let's look at verse 5 again. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So this kind of seems like some tricky wording here. But Peter is saying that rather than the created order going along in some uninterrupted way as if God never intervenes, it is actually the Word of God that brought creation into being and sustains it. That is to say that from the beginning of, from the beginning of creation, God has always had His hand in things. He has always intervened. He has always been active in preserving His creation. He is not a God who is separated from it in that, in that fashion. He is transcendent, yes. But without Him, without His power, creation would cease to exist. And he's saying these, they should know that. They know this. They can't claim a God who does not intervene. They cannot claim a God that is not involved in His own creation. What does Scripture say? Psalm 33.6 by, by the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their host. This is, this is common knowledge. They know this. And so, not all continues as it always has. Not all continues in a uniform, uninterrupted way. Quite the opposite. God is always involved in creation, in sustaining of it. In Hebrews 1.3, we see the fullness of this reality in Jesus Christ, that He upholds all things by the Word of His power. And so what Peter's detractors are saying is that the Word of God or God Himself will not then bring judgment into play. Since everything is going on as it has, why should we expect judgment? Well, we would say, well, human history is hardly one where God does not intervene, where He does not rescue and judge. And so Peter can conclude this time period of the apostolic fathers will be no exception. It will prove to be no exception even though many of them are dying. Many of them are actually being put to death. But this point in human history, Peter says, will not prove to be an exception no matter what excuses 
are conjured up. And so to sum up what Peter is saying, looking at your text here, that just as the heavens and the earth were formed by water and the Word, so water and the Word were involved, and then destroyed by water and the Word during the flood, verse 6, because God pronounced judgment on the world, and then He brought the flood waters to destroy the world. Okay. In that similar way, looking at verse 7, by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved through fire. And so, of course, that means just as God declared by His Word judgment on the previous heavens and earth, so it was destroyed. In the same way, the Word of God has declared judgment on the present heavens and earth, that is, the, 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 point, of, the point of history in which Peter is living, so it will also come to pass. The Word of God will not fail. So we see human history really split up into three primary sections. So we're dispensationalists in that regard. Three dispensations. The dispensation before the flood, okay, water came, destroyed it by the word of God's mouth, by His word of judgment. It happened. Noah exited the ark into a new, cleansed, purified creation, as it were. According to Peter's point of view, that would be the present heavens and earth. That's what he's talking about. The present heavens and earth. And when Christ comes and judges this heavens and earth that is reserved for fire, so that will culminate in the end of that creation order. So we will enter the third dispensation known as the new heavens and new earth. And I say we are living in that right now. There is a transition taking place, going all the way back to what we said about Christ judging and ruling and saving he is, he is doing that right now, and as the gospel is preached, we see the new order, the new creation, subdue and conquer and do away with the old. Hopefully that all makes sense, but that is what is going on in the mind of Peter. But the second, basically that second phase of creation, present in the time of Peter, is being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So an actual historic event. So let's look at verse 7 again. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So we will read more about this in verse 10. So if there's anything left unsaid today and it's a little unclear, we'll try to bring everything together starting in our study in verse 10 because Peter's going to talk about the new heavens and new earth, that this event, that this judgment event will basically kick off. So, in Psalm 50, verse 3, we see this. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before Him, and it is very tempestuous around Him. So, this issue of fire, this theme of fire, is connected with God's judgment presence. So it's, a, it's a very key theme throughout history, throughout biblical history. Think about even as God was with, His presence was with the Israelites in the deserts. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It not only light, you know, lit the way before them, but it also kept their enemies at bay. If you, wanted to see, if you saw this traveling caravan of two million some odd people, and you thought, oh right, victims. We can despoil them and take everything they plundered from Egypt. But then you ride up on them and you see this gigantic pillar of fire surrounding the camp, you'll start to second guess yourself. Because that fire would go out and judge those who came to attack the Lord's people. 
So fire is a, plays a very significant theme with, God, with regards to God's presence, but specifically his judging presence. So Isaiah 66, very key in regards to this, this passage. In verse 15 of Isaiah 66, we read this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and, re- and his rebuke with flames of fire. Now that should sound familiar to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, where we read near the beginning of this message. It looks forward to a coming in judgment. I believe these are the parallel events. Now in verse 24 of Isaiah 66, we read this, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. See, we talk about the corpses in Matthew 24. Who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. So Isaiah 66 is looking forward to a future judgment. And remember, that context of Isaiah 66 is actually the new heavens and new earth. So we see these events connected. Now, Daniel 7, which we've gone to frequently. I kept looking up until thrones were set up. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Now, what's significant about this? Daniel 7, of course, is that event where the Son of Man would come up to the Ancient of Days and be given power and authority to judge the nations. And, of course, fire is present. It says in verse 10 that a river of fire was flowing and coming out before Him. And then we go to verse 11 of Daniel 7. It says this, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Once again, fire, judgment. Judgment, fire. Presence of God bringing that about. Now let's move along in our prophets because Malachi is very key in this event as well. Malachi 4 is pointing to the same judgment phase upon first century Israel. Listen to this. Malachi 4.1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. What's the day? The day of the Lord. And of course, we'll talk about that theme when we get to verse 10. The day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. More fire, more fury, more judgment. Says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Which gives us a hint as to what is going to befall Israel. That old order of apostate Israel will be wiped out. And that's Malachi writing in 430 B.C., just before that intertestamental time, the time of silence. So the context here in Malachi 4, if you read near the end, it's announcing the arrival of the Messianic age and the coming of John the Baptist, right? And he warns of smiting the land with a curse, which is exactly what he did. And that is what, is what Peter is warning about. Peter knows these Scriptures. More than likely, his detractors know these Scriptures, and yet they still do not believe them. Then we get into Matthew 3.10. We talked about this before. When John is baptizing out by the River Jordan, and then some of the teachers of the law show up, and he says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Well, what wrath to come? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He says this, 
Now, this is very key prophetically. In verse 10 of Matthew 3, he says this, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Okay? Why does he say this? Isaiah 10.15, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Who's that? That's Assyria. God's instrument of judgment over Israel. And he's taking that and equating it to this judgment that is going to come by the hand of the Romans. They will be the axe that chops down the tree. And that's why he says, Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, there's fire all around. This is why, friends, it's so important to interpret Scripture with Scripture. What Peter is warning about is on the horizon very soon, not 2,000 years away. It's going to happen near his own time. That's why we read in Matthew 10 again, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. How is Sodom and Gomorrah judged? Fire. How will Jerusalem be judged? It will be set on fire and destroyed. And that's why we see that judgment as one that is very key. It, it, it gives us a picture of the end of that old order. In Matthew 23.36, we can remind ourselves of this. Matthew 23.36, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that, you may fall, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's why we say it's not just a judgment upon Jerusalem per se, it's a judgment upon the entire old order. Because the entire old order is to be conquered by Jesus Christ. And it begins with a judgment on Jerusalem. But that's why Jesus says, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, that constitutes a very long time. So he's not, he doesn't just have apostate first century Judaism in view. But, but a judgment on that entire timeline. And then once more in Matthew 13, 40-43, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. I believe this second age that we're talking about right now. That's the end of the age. So the Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks. Think about the stumbling blocks that are teaching false doctrine in Second Peter, right? He's going to gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. I mean, what an encouragement, both to the saints now or then and then now, that we are to shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. Because right now, just as John says, the true light is already shining. And that is the light of the kingdom. The light of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that is shown forth by His saints, by His people as we proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He who has ears, let him hear. And I think the church today fails to hear that a lot of the time. We're not listening to that. 
But let us have ears to see and then to say that as God's people, we are to shine forth. And we are to stand victorious in the Gospel. This kingdom is the advent of the new heavens and new earth. And as I've said before and will say it again, we are living in it and we are to advance it through the Gospel. But in light of all that, let us return to our primary statement. Is that God is faithful to judge. That is what I want us to get out of this this morning. In spite of all these things, right? Unbelief, the mockery, the scoffing, the ignorance, the circumstances. God is faithful. He was faithful to judge then and He is faithful to judge now. As Isaiah 96, 13 says, Before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. That's the kind of judgment our Lord renders to all people. A faithful judgment, a just judgment, a judgment without partiality. And finally, in Revelation 19.11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And for in, in this text, there is great encouragement for us. Because we wage war with Him. With the truth. With the sword of the Spirit. But it's also a warning. In case any of you who are in here and you're still in unbelief, See, you've heard it before, right? And you come again on every Lord's Day and you hear it. You hear it over and over and over again. And and some of you maybe are tired of hearing it. Tired of hearing the Gospel. You're Oh, he's preaching again about the Kingdom of God. Why won't he stop? Why won't he talk about something else? I preach about the Kingdom of God because I want to make sure you're in it. That you believe. That you believe the Gospel of the Kingdom. That you will not fall into this category of either unbelief or pointing to circumstances to justify your unbelief or saying, oh, I did not know when in fact you did know and you deliberately cast it aside and ignored those warnings. The one who is called faithful and true, if he does not wage war with you, he wages it against you. There is no in-between. There is no neutral ground. And so this gives us occasion today to even say, if this is you, you must repent. You must believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You must turn from your unbelief. And you must embrace Him by faith. Because He is faithful and true. And He will not fail to judge you. He didn't fail to judge then, and He will not fail to judge now. So I would encourage you, even though you may think things go on just as they were, that the Lord, in fact, continues to insert Himself into human history, continues to run it in all of His sovereign grace and power, and He will not fail to sovereignly condemn you if you die in sin. So think about that today. Think about what this means if you are apart from the Lord, if you are alienated from Him. That just as He judged through water and the Word and judged through fire and the Word, He will not fail to judge in this age either. So as we pray, consider that and commit your life to Him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You how it speaks so clear and so truly to us. Um, I pray, God, that those who are in here would, would, uh, would have their hearts open. We know that 
Even in our unbelief, we have no power to do that. We have no strength to to, uh, make ourselves alive. Our will is subject to sin. So I pray that You would do that, Lord. You are the one who shuts and no one opens, and You are the one who opens and no one shuts. So please, open each of our hearts this morning. For those of us who are in the faith, please increase it. For those of us who are outside of the faith, please give it. That we would trust wholly in You. And we know that even looking at this uh, past fulfilled historical event where judgment came, we know there is still more judgment to come. You are presently judging the nations through Your Son. You are judging unbelief. And I certainly hope that uh, no one here who calls Emmaus Road home would, would, uh, would fail to believe that would die in unbelief apart from You. And so face Your wrath. Lord, we, we do pray in light of that for Your continued grace and mercy on us. Uh, that we would entrust, your, entrust ourselves to Your every provision. That we would not, that, Lord, that we especially would not look at our circumstances and think that You are failing to fulfill Your promises to us. That we would not look at circumstances and think, oh, things are just... Things continue to peter out of control and that there's nothing that can be done. Lord, we know that according to Your Word, the nations will continue to rage. And even though they do rage, they will not succeed. For You will triumph over them. We thank You for that truth, Lord. We thank You for the power of the Gospel. We thank You for the comfort that Your Word brings. And I pray, God, that in light of these promises, in light of this victory in which we stand, we will continue to persevere in righteousness, in faithfulness, um, no matter what the enemy brings to our feet. You are our faithful God, Lord. We thank You for all that You've done for us. Thank You for Your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.